0: Radio Okie
1: edition 200 striking resonances with jamie Janover, innovator musician educator mystic whether he's connecting dots and going down the rabbit hole via the resonance project raging his hammer dulcimer or globe trotting to sacred sites this singularity knows how to find the others and enjoy the ride hammer time welcome jamie
0: oh thank
2: you so much for having me Terrible MC hammer pun there. Uh that is some seriously virtuoso shit. Um I was hearing levels of I don't know why, Frank Zappa, some of stuff like that coming through. And I've been listening to some <laughs> Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, Um way old band, but good shit. And it was driving there a little just now for that. Um and I want to get into all this stuff about your music, but by Centennial episode, Cray Cray, uh two hundred deep. Uh, thank you for coming on. It's rather a milestone for us personally, but you're also a get, as they say. I was like, holy shit, I'm going to get this guy on, and it worked. <laughs> so I can't believe we're actually here. So um, they, what we do on this podcast is to talk about uh, the numerological reduction of this episode 200 is 2, and ironically, this would be the High Priestess card. I don't know how familiar with Tarot you are, uh, but the Major Arcana are 22 kind of paths, Um of the fool's journey, so to speak in a very kind of, um, uh, Joseph Campbellian kind of way. In any event, the high priestess is about, I offer up the mysteries of life. Seems like we might be doing this today. Uh, this is about trusting your intuition, listening to your inner guides, understanding yourself better, listening to the music of the universe and allowing creative ideas to germinate Raphael. What card do you have?
1: So for this episode, we got angel number Fourteen. This is the angel of truth, liberty, and justice. This angel frees people who feel trapped or depressed, protects the innocent, and those who do not know the truth. It is God the protector, and the affirmation is: I choose to use my intuition and, and ingenuity to liberate myself. Here we go. So, <laughs>
2: so, Jamie, between those two cards, uh, any resonances for you?
0: Um. Yeah, I I liked what resonated with me was like the talking about the truth, because part of the mission of my mission is to try to correct some of the incorrect things that we were all taught in school when we were kids. And depending on how old you are, that might not be that long ago. But if it's more than a couple of decades ago that you were in grade school, there's a bunch of stuff we were told that was not helpful. Because it wasn't correct. And it's just not fair to go around telling people stuff that is known to be incorrect.
2: <laughs> well, definitely uh, push certain paradigms for a materialistic worldview to maintain, if you want to put it that way. The empire word to maintain. So it's like go. Think of it in these terms uh, and go about your business. But um, yeah, I'm 35. Raphael's a little younger. I think 33. Raphael, am I right? 31. Oh god, I'm horrible. Uh you think after 200 episodes I know how old he fucking is but I don't. Uh, I always think he's older i well, he I'm feels not even sure
1: day. so <laughs> no. Right. But actually right. just as an intro question uh, Jamie, I mean would you you said the last few decades? I mean, I would think back two decades or high school, that's just one decade in my case, and I've been taught plenty of things that were maybe not, I mean some of them maybe even incorrect as I realized later, but at least many of them you know highly uh how do you say that um many missing pieces so very selective and uh one-sided and so on so i would say that's still prevailing and which i can only assume we're going to get into mathematics practically being made to be the most hated subject by almost everyone also pretty much deliberately from what i could gather
0: yeah and some of the deepest truths are actually Found inside of mathematics, which is really just geometry. And that stuff is not very hated, really. Uh, people love when they see really resonant geometry, they love it. And that's mathematics just being, you know, drawn graphically. Uh, it's all about ratios. That's what the universe is doing. I mean, and when I say true stuff that was told to us that wasn't correct, even really basic stuff that's just been, tr- you know, transferred down over the generations um and i don't know how quickly the textbooks are changing but simple things like oh we're probably the only life in the universe because there's you need water to have life and there's not really that much water in the universe and then it's like wait a minute (laughs) at least that was the story when i was in school and now we've found water so many places we're trying to find anywhere that there isn't water and we can't find it so just stuff like that you know and like oh yeah the slaves built the great pyramid of giza like stuff like that that just drives me insane where it's like really you guys you're, you're telling kids that slaves built the great pyramid of giza have you done the math on that have you guys done any calculations just build one now <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm just throwing out a couple of examples i could literally just talk for two hours only about how the slaves didn't build the great pyramid <laughs> right like so there's a lot of stuff that I'm talking about it's very very diverse but when you get down to it when you get to the fundamentals of reality and how the universe works we are not we are not small you know we we I remember being told so many times like oh my god the earth is so big it's really small compared to the solar system and the solar system is so big you can't even imagine and it's just this one star out of billions of stars in our galaxy which is so big you really can't even imagine And the galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies so basically you are so small the insignificance paradox yeah so my whole life as a kid I was like oh my god I'm so small I'm so insignificant and then you're like hold on a second (laughs) Can I look the other direction for a second? And then you go down smaller and smaller and you're like, whoa, cells are really small. Atoms are really small. Oh, yeah, the neutron and the proton, those are really small. And then you're like, wait, what what makes up the proton? Oh, there's tiny little oscillations that Max Planck discovered called the Planck length or the Planck distance. How big is that? It's so small that a human being is halfway in size between the Planck scale and the universe. So, like, you're not small, you're medium-sized. And that is a huge difference in your, like, frame of reference to the universe. Like, oh, to a Planck scale being, I am a universe. I have, like, a universe's worth of information inside of me right now. I'm basically an infinite being inside of an infinite hollow fractal structure that we call the universe. That is such a different way of talking to kids than saying that you're this insignificant blob of cells. You're lucky to be alive because, you know, thankful, thankfully because of a long period of time, a lightning bolt struck the primordial soup on this little rock and voila, life formed. Aren't we lucky that over time molecules happen to arrange themselves into DNA? I don't think so. <laughs> and that's another story I was told that's when I was a-, a kid. It just pisses me off to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to figure out what is correct i'm going to try to figure out how to explain it really simply and then i'm going to go out and tell a bunch of people about it <laughs> so, so there's so, two kind of polls like on yeah, the one hand yeah.
2: it could be a, like there could be nefarious you know orwellian kind of I, I don't know how conspiratorial you are but there could have been an um a real effort to try to close our minds to truths and to like just make well, us well. conducive for you know being this, you know, the worker bees or whatever, right? And on the other hand, yeah, I don't know yeah, if you believe in yugas and that. stuff, uh, but it's like we've been coming out of, I've heard you say like the, uh, not the dark ages, but kind of like the dusk ages or whatever we're in now. Um, right, right. To the degree where it's like, let's just presume for a moment you guys are real. There's maybe some sine wave going through time space or whatever the fuck we're in, this holofractal, and uh, there's quality differentiations, right? Kind of like eaching character quality differentiation so sometimes where everything's golden as fuck and no one's even opening their mouths and they're just transferring data telepathically and then there's sometimes where it's like oog will kill anything oog doesn't know from his tribe or whatever you know it's like um i don't know about your presuppositions in terms of darwinian evolution or any of that stuff i do want to get into this but i am fascinatingly curious um not to put the cart before the horse because you're getting off into like what you basically have been doing for the past 10, 15, 20 years or so um, with kind of the Sim Resonance Project and stuff, but that's not really where you started. Um, So it seems you were born in New York. You're a Libra, I should say, Sun and uh, Libra, Moon and Aquarius. Like I was saying, I'm a double Gemini and Raphael's a Libra with Northland Nucrose. We're all gang, air gang as fuck in here. So um, asking the questions and having fun simultaneously kind of is the way. Uh, Tell me about how you grew up. How the fuck did you get into dulcimer? Like, were you growing up in Manhattan? Tell me about this kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I was in Manhattan until I was seven. And then my parents. That's ratchet. That's a big consciousness alterer i mean new york is a big deal energetically otherwise
0: it was it was great um when i look back on it and i have perspective of like all the ways or places i could have grown up i think it was really good for me in a couple of ways the main ways would one was culturally where every day when we went to go do anything i was on the streets of new york and so i was seeing In real time, like every culture in the world. It's like Moss Eisley. It's just like the melting pot. Yeah, we'd go down the block where all the Jamaicans lived, and then we'd go to Chinatown, and then we'd go to Little Italy. And it was just like, oh, I see. There's a bunch of countries, and there's people from all those different countries here in this city. I was like, oh, that's how the world is. Not, oh, I'm in wherever I am, and everything's the same. It's like, no, New York is like about as diverse as it gets on planet Earth. because. You know, literally every culture in the world immigrated at some point. Somebody did, and their relatives are still around. And so, it's pretty cool to have that. And then, in the same sense, I think on a, on a smaller scale, it was actually good because I got exposed biologically to every pathogen known to man. <laughs> so it's the petri being, dish. Yeah, when I was a kid, I literally remember crawling on my hands and knees in Grand Central Station. You know, which is really dirty, especially at the time that I was crawling on that floor. And I undoubtedly, because I was three, put my hands in my mouth. So I got chicken pox, I got measles, I got mumps, I got mono. <laughs> Throughout my childhood, I had every childhood disease. And my immune system was like, check, next, <laughs> right? So, like, now. I don't get that sick. Like, my immune system's like, oh, yeah, I know all about all those things. I even went to Africa one time, and I think I got malaria. So, like, I've, I've, ha- I've had some sicknesses, but, like, it was kind of good to be in New York. Like, oh, yeah, you're being born on planet Earth right now. Here's a good example of what Earth is like. <laughs> and it was just like, deal with this. And so then by the time I moved to New Jersey, I was like, oh, I could just go run around on the street in the middle of the street and play kickball this is awesome. (laughs) So I kind of had best of both worlds. I got suburbia and city and I'm grateful for that combo. Well, central park and FAO Schwartz. There's a lot of dank shit up in New York
2: for kids. I I think FAO Schwartz is gone now. It's like an Apple store or something. I'm not sure. I haven't been there in a while, Um, but uh, up to seven, like that's a big deal. That's like, you know, skull shattering kind of situation. And it does sound like you did kind of inoculate yourself to uh, the world's diseases, uh, for better or worse, <laughs> I mean, I made so you could doubt it or not be sure if you have malaria. That's pretty dope. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, just
1: because you mentioned that, Jamie, do you know if you're vaccinated as a child or later on? Because it's, oh, it's, yeah. oh,
0: yeah. Of course. I, I was vaccinated. I'm old enough that I have that. You got that spot. mark on your arm. I have that mark on my arm, right? Like, I'm old school, so... I got whatever they gave kids at those days, which was literally only probably like eight things instead of like forty things that they do.
2: No I mean, to have a scar for that long, it's like they didn't—they weren't graceful about that shit. Oh no! My mom's arms like, like, what the
0: fuck? Well, when I went to Africa, I got like shots for cholera and stuff like that—the kind that they have to do in your butt and the needle's really thick. Oh my god, that was horrible. Like I don't I don't recommend getting a cholera shot. <laughs> but this was like in the eighties. And so that's just what you did when you wanted to travel to Kenya in the eighties, you had to get that shot. So uh but I haven't had any shots like that since about eighty-eight. So <laughs> and I, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical about all the craziness that goes on because I the more I dig into how things work and what is actually going on, the more informed I am, the less I wanna Uh, play ball with some of the power structures (laughs) Amen. I
2: mean I don't know if you want to go as nefarious as Agenda 21 kind of rabbit holes but it's like because I'm on the fence where I'm just like oh shit Uh, because I was traveling I was in Australia last year this time and Ecuador and Switzerland and just getting around kind of like you've done and then all of a sudden clearly stop and I'm like, oh, fuck, my fiance is in England. <laughs> I'm like, I want to meet you. I haven't even met her. And I'm like, I want to meet you, but I really don't want to get a vaccine. She's very anti this whole situation. Raphael, I think, has a pretty strong uh, view on that. But we can get into COVID and stuff like that if you want later. Um, what part of Jersey did you move to? Uh, Bergen County, Ridgewood, New Jersey. <clears throat> all right, all right, all right. So, so, so you know,
1: Sorry, because I actually know that place. I don't know many places in the U.S., but I actually spent some time both in New York. I mean, I saw Manhattan and I think Bergen County specifically. That's pretty interesting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's the home of the shopping mall. (laughs) Literally the first like big indoor shopping mall that had a food court with a waterfall in it. That was in Paramus, New Jersey, and it was brand new and it was like the world's first literally the world's first, you know, mall mall as we know them today. Um, that's the, That was kind of the claim of fame of Bergen County at that time. Um, but it was, you know, white, suburban, sheltered. Then I went to summer camp and thank God for summer camp in New Hampshire, a camp called Interlochen, which is now called Windsor Mountain Camp. And this was run by, you know, kind of hippie, Uh, a couple that got really into international relations and was all about bringing foreign students to this summer camp to like go to camp with American students. And so all these uh, American uh, East coast kids mingling in with kids from Africa and China and stuff like that. And so that was again, another like uh, helping me to see the big picture kind of thing. And it, enabled me to start like playing music and realize that you can like be an artist or write poetry, even if you're a guy and it's okay and kids aren't going to make fun of you because man, kids were brutal <laughs> when I was. Oh, if you were Michael era, Jordan
2: or Chad Muska or whatever back in the day, it's like, good luck. Yeah.
0: Kids, kids, it's I think, are ta- I think kids are taught more not to be mean to each other more than they used to be. Like, this is back when there wasn't really being politically PC correct. culture. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, where like you know people were using racial slurs left and right and demeaning groups of people because of oh, the fucking flies fun. up in here. Yeah, you know. So uh, I survived. <laughs> I survived the pitfalls uh, that I could have fallen into in terms of like some of the peers that I went to school with. <laughs> so. Were you turned on to music at camp or were you playing before that? I, I was turned on to music by my parents at a super young age. But then when I was at camp, it was like I was getting exposed to other kids that were starting to play music like drums. And then I met a kid who played drums and I thought that was the coolest thing you could possibly do. Cause I had just discovered Led Zeppelin. Um, John Bonham. I was, yeah. I was like 12. And so I thought, Led Zeppelin's the coolest thing. John Bonham's the coolest thing. And so then there was a drum kit at this camp and the kid who played drums started showing me drums. And I was like, dude, I'm going to learn to play drums. So at age 14, I started playing drums and that was like the rest is history. I have a drum kit like within three feet of me right now. So I just played drums within the last hour. So from that day forward, I was like, oh, percussion and drums. That's a good idea. I can channel my whateverness whatever I am into that cuz I was all over the place you know I got diagnosed um dyslexia and attention deficit hyperactive disorder like right when they were in- inventing those diagnoses um and so you know I'm my brain's all over the place and I was like oh if I play drums then I can make a decision every 2 nanoseconds continuously <laughs> Keeps your attention. What drum, that's what drumming is
2: my brother's a drummer so i totally get it uh, so that would have been around when i was born 85 i mean if you're 14 born 69 i mean around then so talking heads were kind of big uh world music was kind of popping peter gabriel talking heads kind of stuff were pushing more um let's just say non-white polyrhythms or however you want to put that uh what were some of the influences i mean what were you getting into at that point were you trying to jam along with thriller or what were you doing No,
0: not at all. What happened is I got turned on to the 60s and 70s. um, In the 80s. Uh, In the beginning of the 80s, I got turned on to all the music of the 70s and the 60s and was like, Oh, my God, Jimi Hendrix. Who's that? You know, as soon as I started listening to all that stuff, I was just like, all about that. And then I hated all the music of the 80s. So like, the music when I was in high school was so bad that I didn't go to my proms. I was like, I'm not going to some stupid gymnasium listening to terrible Flock of music, just, <laughs> being <laughs> all dressed like... up in uncomfortable, expensive outfit, and spending all this money on a limousine. And like, I—that's how much of a <laughs> against <laughs> the flow I was. I boycotted my proms. So I was like, Yeah, you guys go ahead. I'm not going <laughs> to. So the music of the '80s, I wasn't into, but man all like the 70s music i started out liking zeppelin and then i discovered pink floyd and those I, are
2: like the two entry drugs straight up because i was the same yeah, and yeah. Then, yeah and then
0: and then i got into like progressive rock stuff like rush like and, yes and, genesis and yes and stuff like that and then eventually i went to go see the grateful dead in 1984 and was like oh this is interesting there's guys dancing everywhere i've never seen so many guys dancing i guess it's okay to dance because <laughs> north mean, and pisces was so ecstatic oh, like i can man, live in a dream I was, world <laughs> i was in a land of preppies with like guys with izod shirts with their collars turned up you know that whole scene um Oh, God. So by the time I found Grateful Deadland, I was like, oh, cool. The hippies. I see. So there's the rock guys and then the hippie guys and the psychedelic guys and the and the, you know, uh, punk rock guys. And so in my high school, the metalheads, the punk rockers and the hippies hung out together (laughs) as one unit because we were all the outcasts of our high school. And so that works. Yeah, so I was into the hard rock stuff in ACDC, and I was into the psychedelic stuff. And then not very long later, a, a high school friend of mine turned me on, probably in junior high school, turned me on to like jazz fusion stuff, like Mahavishnu Orchestra, Miles oh, yeah. Davis, Return to Forever, of my favorite shit. You're yeah, talking my language drummer, so you, I, I Keep going. Though, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, as a drummer, I discovered all those fusion guys. Billy Cobb was insane. Like, yeah, and I was like, "Oh, John Bonham's not as good as I thought." <laughs> it's good considering how drunk he was or whatever. Well, well, and in the field of the style of music, I mean, when he pulled out those bass drum triplets on Good Times Bad Times on Led Zeppelin 1, that was still fire drumming. But still, then you get people like Billy Cobham and, and Lenny Whitey coming out. And you're like, oh, I see. Those guys were like, yeah, thanks. Uh, hold my beer. And then they were like, let's do that except 10 times faster and in nine, you know, and stuff like that. So I got really into the fusion thing. <laughs> and then, oh, my God. And then my parents and I were watching Monterey Pop Festival on television, and I had never seen Jimi Hendrix before, and he lit his guitar on fire. And I everybody was, like, was on Holy... acid at that. For the record, I know. I, I, know. Was I, know. Like, I was like, "Holy okay. mackerel, who's that?" And then Otis Redding, and then on comes Ravi Shankar and Alla and I'm like, "Mom and Dad, what is going on here? What, what is, is tabla?" That? Yeah, who are these guys? They're like, that's Sitar and Tabla. And I'm like, what? And then they show the audience that famous clips of the audience watching Ravi Shankar because they too had never seen a Sitar. And they were like, oh my God, forget like Jimi Hendrix and like Ravi Shankar is going next level. And so I was like, whoa, this is so cool. My parents are like, you like that? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, I hear. And they, Lent me their Ravi Shankar record. And I played the hell out of that record over and over and over. And then one day, breakfast table, my dad's like reading the New York Times. Oh, look at that. Ravi Shankar's coming to Carnegie Hall. And I'm like, that's what I want for my birthday. Right off the oh, bat. Was that lit? Like, Did like, you go? They're like, what? And so my first concert was age nine, Ravi Shankar at Carnegie Hall. And I was fourth row center. Cause like my dad saw it the day they announced it. Cause he reads the New York times every morning and he just bought the tickets right away. And my mom and my brother fell asleep within five minutes. And my dad and I were transfixed the whole time. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, that's incense. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, yeah, they burn that to make it smell good. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen that either. And I went back to my friends at school. I'm like, I went to see Ravi Shankar and the drummer could make it rain. <laughs> Because I had no idea what the hell those guys were doing. And I still can't play like Zakir or anything, but I have a tabla right here. I'm like, I'm so into it. And, And I love Indian classical music as much as jazz and as much as fusion and all those things. So that's my kind of life of music in a nutshell, really. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's funny because even the evolution and the progression of your own awareness
2: of music kind of reflects the West in the sense that we went pretty hard in the paint with like rock and roll and stuff like a jazz, you know, a gospel and stuff like that. But the, the rest of the world had like some deep ass roots uh, into basically, you know, maths and uh, languages that we just aren't are able to speak. Kind of like when you go to China and see the sacred uh, flower of life on a, underneath a dragon's paws thing and we're over here being like, You know george washington's the shit and it's like he's not bad i'm not getting you know nothing against him hamilton made me appreciate him even more actually but um yeah we're just we're late on the uptake i guess as part of our nation's karma or whatever um so you were nine when that happened that's pretty psychedelic um i think my first concert i was about that age in new york ironically seeing les miserables on broadway and i was just like wow fuck yeah no it's when music hits you in a weird place like uh Ravi's is a little different. That's almost like getting run over by Ganesh or something, but it's like...
0: Well, technically, um, then, I saw I saw Broadway stuff before that Ravi Shankar. I went to Broadway stuff before that, like uh, the Beatles the Beatles thing that happened. It was like a Beatles... There was a Broadway was, Beatles thing? It? Or was it a... Or maybe I'm thinking of the... Oh, I'm thinking of uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow uh, or something. Wizard of Oz. Wizard... Uh, there was a Wizard of Oz like uh, Harlem style uh, like recreation or something like that with Michael Jackson or something like that oh
2: yeah yeah, <laughs> I know the movie you were talking about I forget I mean I think I've seen parts of it once with Diana Ross there was Ross. a Broadway
0: play version of that I also saw Oklahoma and a few other like things but it wasn't until I started going to see people like Rush and like uh, Deep Purple <laughs> and uh, stuff like that, that I was just like getting into the concert world. And then I saw a bunch of dead shows and then I went to college in upstate New York and cassettes were being traded of all these bands. And I listened to this cassette of a jam band and was like, wow, that band's really good. Okay. I'll go see them with my friend. And so I go to this little bar in Amherst Massachusetts downstairs and what do they play they play good times bad times by Led Zeppelin the song I just mentioned and the drummer for that band played it better than John Bonham and the guitar player played better solo than Jimmy Page and I was like how is this even possible right now I just don't I couldn't even comprehend it it was seeing fish in 1989 dude that's (laughs) like (laughs) early yeah uh, amherst mass in the downstairs of pearl street which is no longer around i don't think but i was like holy mackerel so i brought their cassette junta their first album to australia and was semester abroad and then when i went to australia somebody said you should learn and check out the didgeridoo and i was like what is the didgeridoo this is nineteen eighty nine. They're like, oh, it's this thing you'll see. You'll get you'll get there and you'll find it. So I sure enough found a bought one, learned how to play it, learned how to circular breathe, come back to the East Coast. <laughs> then I'm at the chance in Poughkeepsie, New York, watching another one of these fish bar gigs with a hundred people. And Fishman does one of these really long trombone solos and he does circular breathing in the trombone solo. So I go up to him on the edge of the stage after the show and I'm like, Oh man, that's cool. You did circular breathing on the trombone solo. I do circular breathing too. When I play didgeridoo and Fishman goes, What? What's that? And I go, it's this log that termites eat in Australia. And then the Aborigines blow circular breathing through it. And he's like, that sounds really cool. You should bring one to a show sometime. I'm like, okay. So in 1991, in the fall, I show up at the Chance of Poughkeepsie, New York with my didgeridoo backstage at a fish show. And I start blowing it. And the whole band turns their heads around in the dressing room and goes, what the hell? What is that? I'm like, check it out, Trey. (laughs) <laughs> it's a didgeridoo. And he's like, dude, you got to play that with us. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he's like, what song should we do? I'm like, how about, what key is it? in?" Uh, it's a very flat D sharp or something because it's, you know, it's just a piece of wood. It was, wasn't tuned. Um, and I was like, how about the voice jam of you enjoy myself? And he's like, no, no. I was like, damn. And he's like, you know, Colonel Forbin. And I'm like, yeah, I know all your songs. And he's like, well, Colonel Forbin goes up on the mountain. I'll I'll, say, He looks back down into the valley and he sees all the villagers playing their didgeridoos. And then you come out. And I was backstage from the beginning of the show. All my friends that I went with was like, where the hell is Jamie? So I walk out in the middle of the first set and they were like, you need a costume. I'm like, I do not bring a costume. I have a t-shirt and shorts. And then Fishman's like, you can wear the Zero Man dress and I'll wear the Captain Zero outfit. So I am one of the few people to have worn the zero-man dress and walked out on stage with a ponytail in the front of my head and played didgeridoo in the middle of Colonel Forbes' instead. It was like my favorite band, getting to play with them. And then fast forward years later, I'm playing the Hammer Dulcimer, which I got introduced to by the by my uncle um and i became a street musician so i'm playing on the street in provincetown massachusetts in the middle of august it's in the morning there's not many people around i look up there's only one person sitting on the bench and it's trey anastasia i'm like oh my god i'm now about to do a solo for trey okay i better play you something good i'm the guy remember me so i (laughs) yeah he knew he know he knew me i was like oh hey what's up and so I play the dulcimer. He's like, man, that's really cool. You know, you should like bring that to a show and like, you know, play in between sets or something. And I'm like, okay. He's like, just call the office next time you're coming to a show. I'm like, okay. So I called the office. I'm like, Shelly, Trey said I could play in between sets. How about New Year's Eve? And she's like, "Uh, I don't know. I have to call him. I'll call you back. And she calls me back 10 minutes later. Trey said, there's too much stuff going on for New Year's Eve, but you can do the night before New Year's. I'm like, okay. So I end up playing for like half an hour in between sets at Springfield Symphony Hall in Springfield, Massachusetts, the biggest fish show ever to that date, which was 2,600 people. And so I was like beyond excited about this. Cause like I got to play my music improvising in between sets of my favorite band. And they are the most gracious, the nicest the most supportive humans of any band they're like they deserve every bit of success that they've ever gotten fishman became a friend and i got to like go and hang out at his house after the great Went and these giant lemon wheel festivals and stuff and he had these crazy jam sessions at his octagon shaped house in in vermont this is like before he got married before he had kids um I got to be in the everyone orchestra on a tour where Fishman was the drummer one time. So like, I've been very fortunate to like get to interact with and play with my musical heroes. I even got to, Conduct the everyone orchestra at the great American Music Hall with Bob Weir in the band, so like i 've had some moments I got to play with Bela Fleck as a duet oh, see, on that 's crazy on that's the, a, st- on the a, stage good. at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival in front of like nine thousand people so i i i 'm very, very grateful to have been in the right place at the right time and met people that were like really doing incredible stuff and get to like interact with them. And, and be a part of a growing, you know, musical community surrounding all these styles. Well, just glancing
2: at your chart, you have Sun and house, which is Capricorn, but you're a Libra. So it's like high level of achievement relationships, not off the radar for you. Like rubbing really? celebrities, not a, that's not... that's on your cards (laughs) let's put it that way and your jupiter's there mercury's there yeah dude like so it doesn't surprise me you're very social personable um i it's funny that you mentioned fish because this past week i've been listening to a bunch of their albums i used to be into them a lot more when i was in high school then i kind of fell off and got more into disco biscuits and shit like that and then got into a lot of other stuff but um my brother wrote fishman once uh, a letter and my brother's a drummer like i was saying and fishman wrote him back like a like on a postcard going in circles on the postcard trying to fill up all this room about a drum lesson or something. It was crazy. I mean, it's like, you don't think people like that would do that. Um, but very, like you were saying, very considerate. Uh, I think Trey's a Libra. So it doesn't surprise me that y'all's paths kept crossing at some level. I mean, I'm projecting my astrology know-how into what little fish jargon I get, but like straight up today, I was just listening to, um, I I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm doing um, Japanese on, uh, Duolingo. And for like 160 days I've been in first place and I'm just like, crushing that shit and uh so for the past week or so i've been like well what am i going to listen to while i do this shit because it takes like a long time to do all these points on duolingo like oh it's been a fucking forever i'll listen to i think i started with uh story of ghosts or something which was like kind of what i was into more that vibe and i was like oh yeah junta oh yeah uh just going through it all and it's like this shit is crazy so it's funny as fuck and synchronistic as fuck that you're mentioning this to me now because it's like that hasn't been in my consciousness for 10 or 15 years i went to a fish show back in Two thousand three, the first time I did acid, or the second time I did acid, and I took two hits of acid to the show in North Carolina. Mike Gordon had a flu or something, and it was just not a good show, but I was spun off my gourd. I walked out halfway through the set being like, The band broke up. I have no clue what's going on. Oh my god. So it was weird. But um it's just synchronistic and ironic. Couple questions. Uh you were going to dead shows and stuff. You I mean, obviously you got into fish in college what was your relationship with psychedelics like were i mean your parents hippies and you knew what weed was all along or did you you know turn on to this at a certain age or i
0: wouldn't say my i wouldn't say my parents were hippies in the traditional sense but they were hip to that world uh they certainly liked sort of hippie-ish music i guess they loved the beatles and stuff like bob dylan and judy collins and All the folk singers Joni Mitchell and that kind of thing um so weed was a really big deal when I was a kid it was like you you know it was super frowned upon it was super illegal it was the kind of thing where if cops found a single seed in your (laughs) after you could get arrested and go to jail and stuff like that so it was super on the down low and and it wasn't really prominent in my world uh but the fish thing was all or the dead thing life. even i imagine going there and being like
2: i smell a funny smell or whatever oh
0: no i mean i was exposed to that stuff for sure but and it was i i love remembering there were there were there was a couple of weeks where i saw three dead shows day off three fish shows stuff like that it was just like full on just back Are and you forth sober? Between. between. Uh, i mean i wouldn't
2: say i was sober but I don't want to put you on the gun. I just curious. I mean, I used to grow weed here in Colorado for five years indoors, and I used to trip once a week on acid. I'll be very open about this stuff. I don't give a fuck.
0: I mean, I'm talking about a very different time, too. True, true. Uh, And it was like all fish for the 90s. I saw every fish New Year's show in the 90s. And then, again, I was in the right place at the right time, where after playing street music um, all over the country, driving all over the place, back and forth, East Coast, West Coast, um i had friends in boulder colorado and so i visited them and i played street music on the pearl street mall and was like oh this place is really cool (laughs) this place is really cool look at look at this look at this environment look at the mountains and how close you are to all this wilderness yet it's got all the convenience of the west coast uh or the east coast um and a bunch of culture you know so like denver is only half an hour away which means if you want to go to the biggest things like Cirque du Soleil or the Rolling Stones, that stuff comes there and goes to Red Rocks and stuff. The the dead and fish, everybody played Red Rocks and it's only half an hour from Boulder. I was like, this is a good spot. Maybe I should just hang out here. So I moved to Boulder uh, in 95. And at that time it was at this little uh, plot of land in North Boulder and we called it double dig farm. And it was a collection of musicians And among these musicians was Travis and Michael Kang from String She's Incident. And this was right after they moved to Boulder from Crested Butte, Colorado. And so they were playing, you know, small bars in town, like the the Mountain Sun pub to 100 people. And I watched them get into their white van and be like, bye. We were all like, bye. And they would come back like 200 days later having played like 175 shows in 200 days and shit like that in like 96, 97. And that's how string cheese incident got to be big, big, big. Right. And so again, I got to like play with and interact and hang out with those guys all this time for years, you know, all the way till, 2003, uh, I guess was eight years later, where eventually I formed a band with Travis, the drummer, and uh, a bass player, uh, Aaron Holstein, uh, called Zilla. So it was kind of a string cheese side project initially, because that's how we could market ourselves as being able to get these gigs in places we'd never played. And kids would show up because they knew of string cheese. And so we got our own little following going in 2003 to 2008 era, and then that project started playing less, and I had more time and I started playing gigs with a woman named Lynx, and we did touring as Lynx and Janover in two thousand eight, nine, and ten and Then I did a little solo touring, and then I met my partner uh and we started another project called Janover and Resonator, and we toured that project for about five or six years. And in the last couple of years, I haven't been touring as much uh, touring kind of slowed down. I just kind of do festivals. And then obviously this year touring just stopped. So uh, it's an interesting arc of uh, being a musician in the world and trying to like make it happen from playing like a full decade on the street, which was really good for me really. Cause there's ultimate freedom, you know, and, I started I like were you CD. going to
2: school or like how did you transition to a street musician because that's I mean and we're like, just tell me kind of how that happened because that's not I graduated, typical.
0: <laughs> I just graduated college and was right out of college and what was like what am I going to do this summer and I had gone to Cape Cod uh, in a summer some one of my summers during school and put the dulcimer out on the street and played there and it was very lucrative and I was like oh I'll just go play in the street after my first semester of college. And then I realized like, I love playing my dulcimer and I made a CD right around when CDs were first invented. So I was like one of the first street musicians that you'd come up and see had a CD, not a cassette. I had cassettes already, but I also had a CD. And then I made another CD and another CD. And so I would eventually have multiple cds and sell multiple cds sometimes to the same person and that's a whole different world than just having a hat the hat was like whatever i made some tips like not that much it was selling cds it was like i hit the wave of cds (laughs) until people were just starting to stop buying cds when i stopped playing on the street right around when the ipod came out (laughs) so I don't, I haven't done that for a long time, but that decade was awesome. Cause I'd go to like Key West, Florida. I'd go to Montreal. I'd go to San Francisco. I'd go to, um, you know, all over the place, Boulder. Uh, it was just a great thing to just pop out this instrument anywhere that there were people and just start playing. And people were like, what is that? And I'm like, Hey, check out my flyer that explains what this is. <laughs> and like, you know, here, well, that definitely your...
2: take some uh, time off your lips. You're like,
0: let me play. You read that. Uh, this yeah, I learned to just do a top 10 most frequently asked questions flyer that tells you about each recording and how much they cost and all the stuff. So. so your drum uh, skills
2: are translating clearly to like a tuned instrument. What was that transition like?
0: Well, I had no idea about notes whatsoever. So I just got a dulcimer and started hitting notes and being like, those two notes don't sound that good together. Oh, those notes sound okay. Oh, if I put all these notes together, that's a a good sound right there. Okay, I'm just gonna go nuts on those notes. And then I just start playing crazy rhythms because I have a very large rhythmic vocabulary and a not as large harmonic vocabulary. So I leaned really heavily on my rhythmic vocabulary and didn't get too crazy uh, harmonically. And so, kind of. I don't came know up that with opening my, track was crazy. Like there was, st- I mean, it was a well, rhythmic. I hear what you're saying, but it's still yeah. beautiful. Yeah, that's years later. That's me, you know, working on developing chord changes and stuff. I'm talking about just my discovery of the dulcimer was very much like, oh, I'm gonna like do uh, my interpretation of Indian classical music meets Led Zeppelin, meets The Grateful Dead, meets Pink Floyd, meets you know ambient. New age music meets Michael Hedges, meets Frank Zappa, right? So like uh I didn't get any lessons. I don't do traditional music. I don't do traditional dulcimer music. I'm, you know, an improviser. Um and so I got to just kind of do my own thing and I didn't care what I wasn't trying to sound like anything other than myself, just and maybe that wasn't always the greatest thing for me, like cause I don't know. You know it's tough to be a musician sometimes because <laughs> you're, you know what's possible because you've heard every album ever made. And if you're and hanging then, out with Fish during the fucking nineties, you know what's possible. I know, I know. But still, you're like God. I you know because at one point I was like, I want to flip open the real book and just shred giant steps and like all these you know real book changes and stuff. And dulcimer is not set up to be a jazz instrument. That's why. You don't really know of a John Coltrane of the dulcimer because <laughs> there isn't really one. Um, and what's I the tuning for a dulcimer? Guy, out of curiosity, uh, it's set up to be a folk instrument, right? So like certain keys are really easy to play in, and certain and guess, keys geez, are really geez. not. Easy. <laughs> yeah exactly uh you know e flat and b flat are not happy keys on a dulcimer the horn keys the jazz keys that everybody will be like giant steps and b flat one two one two three four and you're like, oh, no. yeah so like in that sense i was like oh okay i guess i'm not gonna be the jazz dulcimer guy in that sense but at least i have this sound whatever this is <laughs> i don't know what it is um and I got to it I seems like, like play you're music having fun. Oh exactly. I got to play music. I somehow managed to make a living as a musician for decades, which is not simple. It involves a lot of schlepping, a lot of moving gear and a lot of traveling, and a lot of flying, and I've played so many festivals all over the world and as fun as that is, anything done a million times it gets to be what's a grind. Challenge. Well, yeah, especially the airports and, you know, how it is flying everywhere. It's just like jet lag and all the things. I mean, I'm not actually complaining. I'm just saying that in it was retrospect, a process yeah. it was a process. Slug
2: tights like... take a while. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So wait, know, how did you go about... from Cape Cod to like Japan
2: and other places? Like, how did you get on the festival scene? Like, were you just like, well, oh, this is where I want to live, where the freaks
0: are, and everyone's pushing limits well, consciously like and stuff? Moving... I did ten years of moving around. Then I went to Boulder. Then I played in bars and did local gigs in Boulder for like years until Zilla formed. Actually, before Zilla was a band called Zavuya, also with Travis and a guitar player, Andrew Green. And so we started doing ski tours where it was the winter, and we were like, "Let's get gigs in ski towns to get free lift tickets." So we did a bunch of that, where we would go to Montana, Idaho, New Mexico, Arizona. And, and places like that utah especially utah and we'd play all these little bars and then get lift tickets from friends or we play at the mountain or something like that Hashtag and that band imploded uh on a personal slash musical level and we replaced uh a tour that was booked for zavuya with a new project that we named zilla and that was in 2003 and so Zilla started touring and gaining a following. We made some records. And then there were some connections with string cheese being booked, I think, uh, after they did Fuji Rock Festival or something. So we were booked by Madison House, the same people that booked String Cheese. So our booking agent got in touch with those Japanese promoters and said, What about a Zilla side a Zilla and String Cheese side project coming to Japan? And they said, Okay. So Zilla did two Japan tours. We did two Alaska tours. uh, And and nowhere else out of the continental US. Um, But those were really fun tours. I mean, it was the most surreal thing of all time. Japan Japan is alien as fuck. Well, we got to the airport to fly to Japan and found out our flight was canceled. And so they booked us on a flight the next morning. So we had to get in touch with the promoters and be like, sorry, we're not going to get there the day before the gig. We're going to get there the day of the gig. Jet lag (laughs) fun. "Uh, Okay. (laughs) So then we land in Narita, and then you have to take that train from the airport into Tokyo, which is a pretty long train. Then you get out of that train, and then we had to get onto the subway, and it was rush hour. And you know rush hour, right, in Tokyo. Human sorting no, the situation. Right, where right. They, have, they have those guys that literally push the people into the car to see how many people they could get in there. Now, Travis and myself especially are pretty tall, even for an American. And in Japan, we were really tall. And we were all carrying all this gear, like huge suitcases. And we would come down to the train platform and the sea would part. <laughs> and everybody was incredibly gracious and polite. And was like, oh, foreigners with suitcases, you should get on this train. So we got on the in train. In a band we, called Zilla, I might add, in Japan. Was I there know. Any like cultural we jump, the, the, we jump out of the subway. There's the promoter with a van. We pile in. They bring us to this place. And they're like, okay, we're going to bring the gear up for you. You guys just get on this escalator. And we're like, get on an escalator? Okay. And we get on an escalator. And then there's another escalator and another escalator. And it's like a series of hundreds of feet of escalators inside of a mountain. And we come out at the top of this mountain where there's this big tower and there's hundreds of kids sitting there waiting for us because we get there when the show is already supposed to have started. So they watch us set up (laughs) and do our sound check, which takes forever. And then we play for literally 20 minutes and we have to stop. (laughs) But the second we started playing, those kids were just hands in the air and screaming and everything. And I was like, I can't believe my life that I just got off a plane in Tokyo and there's kids here who knew that they should come see us play. So that was another highlight of my musical career, no doubt, is playing for the Japanese kids because they are the most ravenous music fans of any people I've ever seen. <laughs>
2: I lived in Honolulu for two years uh, back in like 2010, 11. And uh, I'd, like I said, my brother's a drummer. I'm a guitarist. We'd play these gigs at bars um, late night, kind of like 12 to 2 sets or whatever. And you're right. Like we'd start playing uh, Frankenstein or something. And um, Japanese people would be the ones – because the Hawaii is where a lot of Japanese tourists go uh, right. there during the whole Fukushima thing. Um they are crazy. Like uh, It's because their culture is so subdued that they have like this, I mean, I don't know what Carl Jung would say, but they have a part of them that just doesn't get out that much. So when it like gets out to play, it's like full-on like carnival mode. Yeah, no doubt. It's definitely so, true. So um, I guess I'm kind of curious about a bunch of other things, but maybe right now would be a good time to do a quick music break. Uh, if you got to pee or get some tea or anything like that, do it. I'm not sure what we're going to hear. I think Raphael is picking it um but we'll be back in a second i believe
1: all right all right enjoy welcome back striking resonances indeed that was a dope little track
2: it reminded me a lot of this um uh android jones uh, did something that was like in 360 vision or something in the past few years i think it's called some scar or something oh yeah uh, there's a track that outros with that thing that sounded a lot like the chanting of that very uh, very cool rhythms.
1: And this was Ravi Shankar, right? Well, I don't go. think it was. I don't know. That doesn't sound you. like. Doesn't sound. It was. Well At least that's what the title says. But, but well.
0: <laughs> oh wow, cool. Yeah, there's not a ton of vocal music with Ravi Shankar usually. Yeah. Robbie is uh, okay. instrumental I most know. of the time. Sorry, that's sorry. what's
2: up. So, um, I'll just say one or two things that kind of popped in my head. I'm glad that you kind of brought the didgeridoo back from Australia. Like I said, I just was over there last year, this time for three months, on uh, Gold Coast in Brisbane, and I went to what they call a doof. Uh, it's like a rave doof doof doof. And um, right, I was right. dosed, and I, we got there really early, and no one was there. My friend and I, and there was this guy. Uh, It was like New Year's Day last year, uh, so basically a year ago, and I'm – tripping pretty hard and this guy is playing like didger due to electronic music like 10 feet away projecting at me basically and I was having these like downloads of like holy shit this is I could see what the aboriginals think in terms of like the sonic scaping of the dream spell and just weird shit internally Um, wh- so it's not that typical that you know white people play that stuff Um, I mean maybe more so now but back then not at all so good on you for doing that and I'm kind of curious. Uh, it sound uh, on your website. It was talking about. I don't know if you did this at Burning Man or what, but it's, it looked like you were kind
0: of driving around on a tricycle with drums or something. Can you explain? Yeah, that's what that is. That's that was the next evolution. Um, uh, I guess fast forward to 1999, and I had heard actually 1996. I was in Cape Cod, and playing on the street and I'm living in a little cabin in Truro, Massachusetts. And my good friend, Jake was like, I'm not going to be around for Labor Day. I'm like, what? Labor Day is the biggest weekend. There's always parties. So many people. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go to Nevada desert to Burning Man. I'm like, what? So he goes to Burning Man. He comes back with all these photos. And I go, no way. <laughs> I'm going to have to go to that someday. It's like and Salvador then, Dali meets steampunk, basically. Yeah. And then in 1999, a friend of mine in, in Oregon was like, oh, we're going to Burning Man. If you want to go, you can camp with us. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. So I show up at Burning Man and I, I, at this camp with, with a bunch of crew that all turned out to be like lifelong friends since then. And the rest was history. I have not missed a Burning Man since 1999. I did 20 in a row. Um, And then it didn't happen this year, obviously. So I couldn't go. But Burning Man has been like super central to my life, I would say. You know, first summer camp really helped change my whole vibe. And then, um, you know, traveling and being on the street and meeting all these bands and interacting with like the music community really changed And my direction and and helped develop a lot of ideas and stuff. And then Burning Man hit. And I said, oh, I see how it is. (laughs) This was the goal all along. Well, yeah, because when you just show up at Burning Man out of context, you are stepping into something where over years and years, many people would go and see what other people did and say oh that's a really good idea okay i'll see you in a year and then they show up the next year and they're like check out now look what i made <laughs> and they go no way you put servo motors on that thing and you made it bluetooth like wireless that's a good idea okay i'll see you in a year and they've been doing that for years and years and years and then you show up and you're like how in the world did this even come about how did you guys think of all these things you go and the levels of creativity of novel ideas being put together in novel ways is so off the chart <laughs> that it makes you look at your whole life and your whole world and be like, okay, hold on a second. <laughs> you ultimately end up
2: with Susan Sarandon like littering Leary's ashes in a fucking ritual or something.
0: Crazy stuff. Yeah. I mean this stuff up, got heavy. You end up developing all this other stuff, right? Because like the guys who founded Google met and hung out at Burning Man. Um, I didn't know that. Um, you know, yeah, Elon Musk regularly goes and has parties of his own at Burning Man. All these tech CEO types now show up at Burning Man and are like, "Let's chip in like a hundred grand each, and we'll make an art car." And people are like, "Okay." <laughs> Next well, you know, there's, the no, there's literally a one million dollar art car with state-of-the-art, biggest Function 1 PA ever to go on an art car with $400,000 worth of lasers. And you're like, where is it now? And you look and you're like, oh, there it is. And it's like four miles away. <laughs> and you can see the thing. You're like, oh, yeah, there's that party over there. And there's that party over there. When I first went to Burning Man, when somebody pulled out a Function One's PA, people were like, oh, my God, somebody brought a Function 1 to the playa now it's like there's a dozen art cars with function ones driving around it's like it's gotten so insane every year it gets more insane and so i don't know when i went there i was like wait a second i need a good ride i can't just go on a bicycle around it's so boring i was like i want to cruise all over burning man and play music at the same time i don't want to have to stop get off my bike get onto some drum kit that doesn't move so boring. I want to be on a drum kit that moves. So I'm like, how am I going to do that? First, I wanted to have a hammer dulcimer that drives around, but that's really tough because you want to protect it from the sun. Then it's probably way more fragile. Shade, and then a sunshade gets caught in the wind. And so you got to have it be really strong. And then you're going to, what are you going to have it be motorized or how are you going to pedal and all this stuff? So I was early days of the internet, I Googled recumbent tricycle and I found a recumbent tricycle that doesn't need your hands to steer, you lean back and forth. And there's a tension of just kind of, a just leaning back and forth, the whole front wheel tips back and forth and that's what steers this thing. So I put bungee cords between the seat and the frame so that it won't flop over because you have these handles that you would hold right for leverage so that you could lean back and forth and steer this thing so in replacing those handles i just did bungee cords so it's much more stiff and stable so i could still steer and lean but it leaves my hands free so i mounted this little custom-made miniature drum kit that was inspired by the indian percussionist treelock lock who you may know from playing with John McLaughlin Trio and Oregon and a bunch of other stuff. If you're not familiar with Tree or too, I can't uh, recommend him enough. So little tiny rototom kick drums, little tiny snare drums, six inch high hats, little tiny bongos for toms, little tiny splash cymbals for cymbals. And I mount this thing on the front of the recumbent trike. And then I pull a trailer, a bike trailer with a battery amplifier. Cause the kick drums don't sound like kick drums unless you put a pickup onto the head of this little rototom and EQ out all the high end, boost the bass, crank the volume. And then with a very slight tap, you have a very loud kick drum. And so then I can ride around and play drums and collaborate and have people in the back playing bass or singing or drive up on a jam or drive up on a DJ and play. And so I've been doing that for two decades and i have not changed the rig very much at all it stayed the same like i just honed in really hard on this instrument it's basically an instrument the arrangement of the drums is very specific so it's muscle memory and i can just jump onto this thing and like not hit people <laughs> and still steer and play um and then, and then the percussive later, chitty chitty bang bang of the playa. Yeah, then I came across a guy (laughs) probably in like my third year there, maybe 2002, um, this guy, Bob Hoffman, and he had a rig that was a car, an art car with a platform built over the car. So the steering wheel just stuck out of this platform. And then there were these pipes that stuck up and these wires running along the pipes. And when you hit the wire, giant fireballs were coming out of the top of these pipes. I was like, what the hell? I wrote up on the guy. I'm like, what is this? And he's like, oh yeah, pyrocushion. Pyrocushion? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. I was like, can I try it? And he's like, oh God. Because you can imagine how many people come up to him and say, Can I try it? But then he let me try it and I was very musical. You know, I treated it as a musical instrument, not I'm gonna bash this thing and see how big a piece of fire I can get coming out of this thing. And then he's like, wow. You sound really good. You sound better than most people trying this thing. He's like, hey, we have this ceremony where we're supposed to drive in circles around this giant thing before they burn it. You want to come play and be the musician for this? I'm like, sure. So then I'm like riding around all over the playa making giant fireballs with drums. And then I'm like, man, I got to buy one of these. Can I commission you to build me instruments? And so over the years, I bought several instruments from this guy. And I mounted pyrocussion instrument onto the front of the tricycle so i can hit a wire that moves a valve that releases propane under pressure and then uh you have like a a pilot wick going all the time so when you hit this thing you could be like and make you know an envelope of sound uh including the high-end sound of the of the propane as well as small explosion to large explosion (laughs) depending on how much propane you let out and how hard you hit it and how fast it ignites and so it's got quite a lot of uh variety of sound in addition to a full envelope of light from not very bright to really bright and from not very warm to really hot so when you're standing next to this thing it's super engaging because you're getting your senses hit like your skin feels it your eyes see it the low end is there the high end is there and that's just one instrument one sound of my full drum kit worth of sounds and so that's been another just like absolute joy is just riding around burning man and and seeing all the art that people make and interacting with people on a fire drum tricycle
2: well, you do have what's called a stellium, three or more planets in a sign. You have many planets in Libra and most of them are in ninth house, which is Sagittarius, which is fire, It's the highest fire. So the fact that really? you're like yeah. travel yeah. So the fact that you're traveling a shit ton, Jupiter's in ninth house, um, Libra. I mean I could explain this to you some other time, but um all this travel, it's like in your code. Like it's you're going to be traveling the world. You have to. In fact, like you you that's how you process reality in a way through experiences that's interesting, that are exotic yeah That's and then what the fact that you know for sure fire it's like, oh shit, look, he's banging around on the fire, and it's not just like I mean it's kind of freak showy in a sense, but it seems like you're very uh friendly and engaging. It's not like a kind of like standoffish thing if that makes sense at all. um, it seems like you're actually a part I'm mean, seen as a strong word, but it's like you're involving yourself with the organic reality that is the <laughs> festival. I only went to my first festival last September, ironically, I've been to one fish show back in 2003 and one festival up in Orcas Island, um, a base imagine. Um, yeah. 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 that was my first festival last year. I was a volunteer. It's, really sweet, sweet. it's, uh, a really it's very sweet small. Uh, yeah. And we have um, there's a Freemason who's a DJ who did a midnight set on headphones and I was all spun on liquid for the first time. And I was like, what the fuck? But there was like nobody there. It was really bizarre. Anyway. Um, th- so I'm not like big on festival scenes. I'm not against it personally, but just, I get overwhelmed kind of with the psychic energy of that kind of level of stuff um to put it bluntly uh yeah tell me kind of how the progression of burning i mean it seems like you kind of plugged in and grew with burning man as not vicariously but it's like it seems as much a part of your personage just looking at you i mean from what not to judge you or anything just looking at you i'm like oh this is a burner i could tell and it seems like you have been going for 20 years so like what's that process psychologically sociologically been like well um Go for it. Festival
0: culture hit me all at once, kind of in 99, because I had been I'd been to a couple festivals here and there uh, before that. Um, but I showed up in Colorado. I went to Telluride Bluegrass Festival. And it's perhaps the most spectacular place you could have a festival. I don't know if you're familiar with Telluride Colorado, but I haven't been Googling there, Google. but it looks like the Alps. Just, just start Googling Telluride, uh, any Telluride Festival, and you'll see the location of that stage. Um, and so that's where i first saw string cheese actually it was the very first set of the thursday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning hardly anybody there i was in the front row and out comes string cheese incident as a four piece um and i was like oh these guys are cool and my friend dave watts from the band the motet that i moved into this house with um in boulder knew the drummer travis and introduced me uh that was june of 94. And so then uh, I started going to festivals and hit up Burning Man and started going to High Sierra Music Festival um, with String Cheese, driving out there with Travis and sitting in the String Cheese on percussion. And then I started getting gigs at High Sierra and I would bring my drum trike to High Sierra starting in 99 after I made it at Burning Man or starting in 2000. I did like 14 High Sierras in a row. I did fourteen Oregon Country Fairs in a row, I did twenty Bernie Mans in a row, I did so many other jam band style uh, festivals, the symbiosis gatherings, the lightning in the bottles, stuff so like that. So is it and the music said, scene or is it
2: like the workshops that's drawing you there or both?
0: Ah, oh, it's the whole it's the whole festival scene. It's like the culture of the festival. That's where you have time to hang out. If you go to a show, you're to, probably in, an in a operation. bar you're probably in some place really loud where communicating involves yelling back and forth. and Then after the show, maybe there's somebody who wants to go to a house party or drink or something like that. And it's not the same as waking up in the morning, going to get your coffee, <laughs> seeing somebody else who's also just getting their coffee that you don't know and getting into a conversation and then taking your time and being like, oh, I guess we'll go get breakfast. and it's just a whole, it's like you're living there. It's like, it's like your home for a while and you're with like such a diverse crowd and there's such diverse offerings that you can like play the festival in whatever way you want. You can party all night and never sleep, or you can be like, I'm going to go to bed early and then get up early and go to the yoga class and then, you know, do a satsang and like do yoga all day. You know, it's like, so it's a very diverse scene, really. And the festivals just kept getting better and better because people started to figure out, oh, this doesn't just need to be strobe lights and alcohol. We want it to be workshops and art and different kind of activities that are spread out 24 hours, not just in the nighttime party time. So, And like the festival consciousness, it seems. Yeah, for sure. Because then you've got all these people that are doing diverse workshops and talking about stuff and getting into panel discussions and then doing activism and nonprofits get involved and it gets really deep, really quick. (laughs) Um, It's like like new age paradigm,
2: like utopianism. I mean, to me, it's very much like finding the others like for real, real, not just being like, oh, that guy was cool at that show. See you next tour. Or whatever which is fine in and of itself i'm sure but like this seems like you're saying more kind of like sustainable possibly
0: yeah and then folks on the west coast um like symbiosis and lightning in a bottle that had been going to burning man started applying some of the principles of burning man towards the festival and getting the technical aspects of it super dialed so like some of these festivals are just so dialed so well produced um have such great offerings. Uh, So I started to seek those festivals out around the world. And in the winter, the festival scene kind of stops here in the U S. So I started going to the Southern hemisphere and did three or so tours, I think of Australia and New Zealand, and then would go to Bali and hang out um, for a spell after that and play the Bali spirit festival and then come back in April in time for the, beginning of the season here so i was doing that for several years as well and played at boom festival in portugal envision festival in costa rica rainbow serpent festival in australia luminate festival in new zealand the great convergence in egypt it's been i got to get it done
2: jamie it <laughs> I, got, done.
0: I got to i got to play a gig across the street from the great pyramid of giza on december 21st 2012. Okay, like, so that's. I want I to like, get okay, to that.
2: Another, but before, because uh, like you made, were talking about 2012,
0: uh, before 2012,
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't know how into McKenna you are and stuff like that because these circles kind of all overlap. Um, psychedelics, you know, kind of New Age thinking and McKenna types, Alan Watts types. Um, when did it seems like you turned on an Sim at a festival? What
0: was that whole
2: sh- setup like? I mean, did you just walk in and you're like, holy fuck, like, I'm ready for
0: this? Or how'd that work? Uh, well, I had been, uh, I think it was when I was in Australia in, in college for my master abroad that somebody said, it sounds like you'd be really interested in, you know, spirituality meets physics. Have you ever heard of this book, the Tao of physics? And I said, no. And they said, for Toph check it out. So I read Tao of physics and I was like, oh, if Einstein and Lao Tzu were basically saying the same thing in a different way. That's probably like super central, super fundamental information, which in a nutshell, that's what Tao physics is saying. The ancient you know, Chinese mysticism, spiritual traditions were essentially saying the same thing that modern physics was saying. So that got me interested for sure. I read a bunch of books related to that stuff. And then fast forward to 2002, where I'm at Horning's Hideout, String Cheese Incident Festival in Oregon. And an old friend of string cheese, uh, Amber, um, who used to date, uh, somebody that, you know, would kind of hang out and be a guide for skiing when string cheese would go to Montana. She said, Oh yeah, we broke up. Uh, that guy and I broke up, but I have a new boyfriend and he's doing a workshop here at the festival. He's a physicist and he's doing a workshop on unified field theory. His name is Nasim Haramein. And I'm like, okay, I'll go see your boyfriend, Nasim Haramein, talk about physics. And so it was a bunch of folks sitting on grass in the woods, uh, in like a grassy area, with a knoll kind of thing with trees. It was really pretty. And he had a flipboard uh, of paper and he was writing and talking about geometry and sacred geometry and star tetrahedrons and Tetrahedron grids and all this stuff. I was like, "Wow, this, I, this is cool." I, I've heard about this kind of stuff. And then he started showing crop circles, and I went, "Wait a minute, <laughs> crop circles!" I thought this was a physicist with physicists don't talk about crop circles. There's a bunch of guys with boards in a field. You know, it's all—it's a hoax. And long story so we've been short, led to believe, yeah. Well, long long story short, yes, there's most of those crop circles are people. With boards, and then there's some crop circles where they've done peer reviewed journal science on it, and they cannot explain The energy it is different I, there. Something's happened. Yeah, it's it's. A, I could talk for two hours just about crop circles. I actually have a presentation on crop circles if
1: people are interested. But anyway, Patty, um, this, just to mention Patty Greer yeah. Crop Circle Diaries is a good starting point. It's even on YouTube. Patty Greer okay, Crop good. Circle Diaries, and they talk about I the think differentiation. I dimension her. as well. Oh well, <laughs> I think I met there you
0: I would be surprised,
2: Jamie. I think she I came, be to, Jamie, met, think like, she came to my talk
0: in Los Angeles where the earthquake happened.
2: <laughs> I oh, a, I, a, I heard you talk about that. Go into <laughs> that for a second because it sounded like a
0: providential moment, dare I say. All right. So, what happened is I see this guy, Ms. Sim mean, do this presentation. I go, this guy's onto something, but I'm not really sure what the hell I just said because some of it just went over my head. So, I started seeking him out. And going to his presentations at festivals, and sometimes he'd do independent presentations outside of festivals. And I went to a bunch of them until I eventually saw one of his classic all-day-long, 13-hour-long presentations at a retreat center near Mount Shasta. And then right after that was High Sierra Music Festival. And I show up at High Sierra, and having sat in or played with Bela Fleck, there's a Future Man, the drummer for Bela Fleck, who plays the synthax ax and he's got a video camera, an old school VHS style, because this is like, I don't know, 2005 or something, 2007. Um, and he goes, oh, hey, man, good to see you, because he knows Amber as well. Amber actually did some dancing for his his uh, Nashville Symphony dance troupe co- collaboration that he did a long time ago. And so he's like, oh, how's it going? How's Nassim doing? I'm like, oh, he's good. And then he's like, "Hey, can I film you explaining what Nasim says?" And I'm like, "Uh, I, I'll, I'll try." And he's like, "So here I am being filmed by Future Man." And he's like, "Tell me what Nasim says in five minutes." And I'm like, "Oh, so It's I don't, like a DMT presentation. It's like, "Hold on, here we go." Yeah, I don't remember what I said, but when I finished, he's like, "Cool, I get it." And I'm like, "You do?" <laughs> he's like, "Yeah, I get it. That's really cool." I'm like, "Wow." And I should try to explain this more. So then I go and I like sit with a couple of my friends. And I'm like, can I just tell you guys this epic theory. And so I talk to him for like half an hour. And I go really deep into like the implications of this. And I got him to cry.
2: <laughs> what are the aliens, like-
0: man? Well, I don't even remember. I don't think I was even saying anything about aliens. I was just talking about the nature of the universe. And they got so moved by it that they cried. And I was like, this is really powerful. I was like, I just listened to that guy explain a bunch of stuff. And then I tried to explain it to somebody else. And it worked. And they were like, holy shit, to the point of them crying. And I was like, that is probably a good idea. I should probably work on that. So, your north so, node, I got to say, your north
2: node, which is your karma, destiny, whatever, is in third house, which is Gemini-flavored Pisces. You're here to give information about the, the transcendent, like the ineffable, like musically and like, otherwise.
0: Like, like that's what uh, you're yeah, here I for, bro. So you've you was generating that. I was translating that musically, and I didn't really know because I I don't have any training. I was just kind of channeling. Oh, yeah. That's and I, and what I would say. I would, and and would I'd, I'd kind of get the same effect where I could be in like in Harvard Square, rush hour, guy with a business suit and a briefcase walking really quickly, sees me and starts and to slow down as if in they're in molasses until they're s- frozen. And they just stare at me and they're in a trance. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they go, whoa. And then they're like, "Oh, where am I?" Like, uh, and I'm like, "How did I do that to the businessman guy?" I was like, "Huh?" So anyway, you're speaking in tongues with the machine elves, yes. Up. And then I was like, "Now I can do that using words, where I explain a bunch of stuff, and people go, whoa, wait, hold on.'" And so I eventually went to Nasim, like Nasim, I think I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> believe it or not, like it was almost an insult, like believe it or not, I might understand you. I was like, "Nassim, is it okay if I try to explain this to people? I mean, I don't want to mess up your theory. And he's like, actually, on the contrary, I need help because I could go around the, my whole life, the rest of my life, explaining the stuff that I've already figured out. But that's not the most productive thing that I could do. I need to stay in my lab and work on physics to prove my theories are correct and have other people explain my theory. And I'm like, well, sign me up for that whenever that happens. And then in 2008, he did a training. Uh, where he talked to us for 100 hours over 10 days and gave us the full download and a a, a CD with all of his life's work on it. And then I started doing official presentations on his work for the Resonance Science Foundation. And I've been doing those presentations consistently since 2007. So I've done like about 250 of them in something like, I don't remember, 18 countries, I think, and six
2: continents. I remember seeing in 2015 – I mean I was eating – it was like 2014, 2015. I was growing weed in Fort Collins up at Horsetooth Reservoir and eating acid once a week. And I was just getting – I was just waking up basically. I mean I've had some surreal experiences back in high school and stuff Um, and talked to Egyptian deities on DMT in 2011. But basically I hadn't dipped my foot into certain rabbit holes. And all of a sudden I was like, oh shit, McKenna. Oh shit, Alan Watts. Oh shit. And I saw your presentation of Nassim's stuff – um. I don't think I was spun at the time, but it was like one of those things where I was just like, this makes total sense, but it was also the time when I was just turning on astrology, Tarot, Jung, um, fucking Crowley, every kind of every level of magic and everything, right? So I kind of was like, all right, this is dope, but I'll, I'll pick this up later, and I haven't looked at it as much intensely since then, I and mean, I've been watching your um, presentations from around that era or more, you know, those years. And uh it's some seriously important shit, but I'm kind of curious uh, before I mean I don't know how much I kinda wanted to want to get you on at some other point to like give a good spiel on this stuff, but I'm curious, what was your ontological presuppositions before this? I mean, were you like we're in a hologram, I know it. Or like how did you feel about reality um before he started kind of plugging in data that um maybe verified inclinations, if you know what I mean?
0: Well, I you know, I think like most people that go deep into the inner realms. You can sense that there's some serious levels that are deeper than our normal waking reality um and it's and no one really knows like we barely even understand dreams or sleeping, never mind the dimensions or uh, uh esoteric like god what is god what's up with that is there a god like what's up with the universe how did it start is the big bang for real is that really how it started there was nothing and then there was a singularity and then it blew up really is that seriously that's what you guys are telling us maybe as kids? Just,
1: maybe to get into one <laughs> thing explicitly is it not seen because i believe just as you mentioned this that this is flashing in front of my head you know When someone researches this, these are the obvious questions. Where's the beginning? Where is the end? And is it Nassim who then showed these pictures where he's asking the question? And then he's, I think, almost in a comic-like style showing like this entity. So, okay, if nothing was there before, who created that which supposedly come out of nothing? Am I getting this right or wrong? Because it's it's, it's one of his main points as well, no? It's more funny than that. It certainly is. Please, I mean, please, we have you here, that maybe story, you want to briefly good, explain it, because it's a good, a good one, I guess.
0: Because, you know, Nassim is one of these guys who looked at everything from the beginning and was like, yeah, I don't think so. I think you guys are insane, <laughs> meaning physicists, right? Like, first day of school, the teacher goes, well, obviously, you guys all know we live in the third dimension, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, third dimension, that's width, depth and height. Oh, okay." how do you get to the third dimension oh yeah zero d one d and two d and then now we are in three d right and fourth d might be like time or something like that so hold on a second what's zero d again oh yeah zero d is an infinitely small point in space that has no width no mass no depth no height and it basically doesn't exist and then the teacher puts a dot on the blackboard and says this is a singularity." It represents zero D. And Miss Sim is like, you guys are out to lunch. (laughs) What are you talking about? I thought physics was supposed to make actual observations of actual stuff, not just make up imaginary things and give it a name and call it something. And the teacher's like, uh, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Because then you could take a bunch of these non-existent points and put them together in a row and call it a line and call it one D. Have we ever seen anything that's one D? No. And then you take three of those and you make a triangle and you call it flat space. And you're like, that's 2D. (laughs) Have we ever seen anything that's flat at all, ever, in the history of science? No. There is no such thing as flat, period. Take anything, even graphene, one layer thick of carbon, right? Notice I had to say the word thick. (laughs) If you say thick, that's not flat. Atoms aren't flat. Okay, so there's no flat. Period. So wait a second. You're telling me that you're going to take something that doesn't exist made of something else that doesn't exist, made of something else that doesn't exist, right? The 0d plus the making the 1d which makes the 2d and you take four of these things and make a tetrahedron or you take six squares and you make a cube and now you've enclosed space. So now you've got mass volume height width and depth that's the third dimension that's where we are right now and the sim goes mathematically you just did non-existence to the fourth and called it reality that's messed up (laughs) and it's like that's a really really good point because all of our physics is based on the fact that we understand what a dimension is in the first place I'm not much into physics, but a lot of the
2: modern presuppositions of physics are coming from like a, a modern view of reality, where it's very much like yeah. Newtonian and inherited and stuff. I'm wondering how you think ancients grokked what they did about reality without maybe some of the technical innovations that we have had more recently, like hadron. Club. Right. Well, so what like I'm saying
0: what... is that the ancients had this understanding of, of a deeper level, and they understood it very well. And then modern physics came and did the whole reductionism thing where they tried to break it down into smaller and smaller pieces. And then Cartesian planes came along. Thank thank you for that, right? Where it became, everything got flattened. And then it was X, Y, and Z axis, everything. And rotation is out the window. Curves are out the window. And it's like, hold on, what happened to quaternions? The quaternions was three angles of rotation, the three different degrees of, uh mobility of spin and that's i j and k and then they got rid of that and they're like no no, no never one just make it x y and z and make everything flat and just make a grid and plot things on this grid and then we're going to figure out this stuff and it's just not the way it's not the way and then science do you think it's costly in... necessary i mean in a yuga sense this is like the best we're doing with what we have so it's like of uh, course if we only have matches the bonfire back. can back it, so it, it's doing It's doing the cycle. It's coming back. Now, modern physics is like, oh, the ancients figured it out a long time ago. We were just totally out. We went on a big loop and we had to come back around. So I'm getting back to this story that you wanted me to tell about the the guy, (laughs) which is that Nassim, having pulled the rug out on the standard model of physics on slide one of his presentations, right, goes and says, okay, put me in front of like mainstream physics so there's a guy foster gamble who went on to make the movie thrive and recently thrive too that guy foster gamble saw nasim present like 30 years ago and said this guy's onto something and he gave him a per diem like helped him financially so that he could stay in his uh research mode and not have to like get a day job and so foster gamble brings nasim Harman to the physics department at georgia tech now how he got him this gig i don't know shortly before Uh, Nassim was there, the Dalai Lama was there and presented to this physics department because the Dalai Lama was interested in the connection between spirituality and science. And then a week later, Nassim shows up and then he gets to sit in a group of 12 physicists that includes Paul Serac, the guy who started string theory, very pronounced, uh, prominent physicists. And so he pulls out the book Gravitation by Wheeler, Thorne and Meisner, three very foundational an influential physicist that wrote this book that's kind of like the Bible on gravity. Right, it's like the the Bach of physics or whatever. Yeah, all the first year students have to read gravitation. And so he opens this page 719 and he's like, okay, so you guys are giving me equations on how the universe works. And finally, after 719 pages, you give us a model of the known universe. And what is it? It's a guy blowing up a balloon with pennies glued to it. Right, and this is a model. Yeah, we're like, there was nothing, and then there was a singularity, and then the singularity blew up, and then space was created, and then space has been getting bigger and bigger ever since like a balloon inflating, and the galaxies that are pennies on the outside of the balloon are moving away from each other as space itself expands, right? And so then, Nassim's looking at these guys like, okay, there's one equation that I cannot find anywhere in any of your book, and that is, who is this guy? Blowing up the balloon because they have a picture of the guy blowing up the balloon, right? It's like the first mover kind of argument. Yeah, like if the universe is expanding, the guy's lungs have to contract because the only thing that we're pretty damn sure of in the entire world of physics is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So have you heard about the big contraction? Not particularly. You've heard a lot about the Big Bang, but they've got half the equation. (laughs) They're missing the other half. And then he goes deeper and is like, yeah, and all these measurements that you're making are because there's stuff to measure. If there was no stuff, you wouldn't be able to make measurements. There would be no matter for light to bounce off of and hit your telescope. You would have no X-rays, gamma rays, microwaves, cosmic rays, photons, nothing if there was no mass. And so what's mass? That's a good question. We don't even know where mass comes from. We know it's made of atoms. All mass we've ever found is made of atoms. And you're like, okay, well, what's an atom? And then you're like, well, we don't really know what an atom is, but we know it's 99.999999% space. Super Zen Buddhist. And so it's like, oh, so you want to figure out the universe. So you're observing point zero 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 one percent of the universe and then trying to make a bunch of calculations <laughs> and predict how much stuff there is. And then you get on your telescope and look, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what's wrong? We're missing some of the mass. Really? How much are you missing? 95%. (laughs) And what did they do at that time? Did they say, oops, we might have made a mistake. They said, no, we have to be right, damn it. We'll just invent a new type of matter out of thin air and call it dark matter. And then you just have to give us billions and billions of dollars for decades so we can look for this stuff. And notice they have not found it, because there is no dark matter and they're we're looking the wrong
2: way right i guess
0: yeah, it's kind of funny because we're getting into scientific dogmatism a little
1: yeah um, we've total total the children on,
2: and he was uh, on a band ted talk he had he was talking about like the constant of the speed of light being kind of fixed by the academy this is kind of yeah. weirded out where it's like people don't have access to these rooms i don't know if you've seen hamilton the musical um or whatever but it's like the room where it happened kind of thing it's like people are making Decisions essentially. I mean, this is true of all overall, but this is kind of what the whole uh, astrology of the present moment is. It's like the veil. I mean, you have the high priestess card for this episode. The veil is being lifted. What's behind the veil? The high priestess, right? This kind of uh, Shekinah energy. And in any event, um it seems that a few people i'm not even going to blame anyone in particular because newton was a pretty mystical dude he wrote his own bible and thought some crazy stuff which is fine uh but it seems a lot of these people were um systematically burned at the stake, so to speak if not literally that's right and that's right. That's um right. That's right. that might be yoga related so i'm going to give a little compassion to the situation as it stands but also you know karma and all this weird stuff we're kind of climbing out of that place psychedelic revolution has kind of helped that ever since the 60s you know and things like you're talking about the Tao of physics um string theory stands on those kinds of the momentum of those kinds of things i mean i'm not that abreast on physics so this gets really quickly into a territory i'm not you know familiar with um but i'm pretty sure you know back in the day like you know einstein and these dudes were like the observer affects things like that seems to be the as above so below as within so without maxim but people in a very different post judeo-christian post newtonian model were trying to like understand things in a way that i don't know it's hard to explain it's kind of like optical illusions like if you don't cross your eyes in the 3d you know th- uh, i forget what they're called 3d Magic guy. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. If you don't look at it right, you will not see it. You know what I mean? It takes like a certain perspective to see the thing. And I think for a long time, whether it's, that's what I was asking earlier. Do you think this is causally necessary? Like, did we have to go into a cul-de-sac of material reductionism to hit our, our head on the ceiling
0: of that and go, this isn't the way, um, I, I'm I mean, of, it seems like it, it seems like that's the only time anything ever changes in the universe. Look at biology. It's just doing its thing and then the environment changes and then the birds' beaks have to change so that they get longer so they can fit into the size of the flower that's around them. And so shit happens is a phrase that has lasting power because that's literally a definition of the universe. Like comets will eventually hit the surface of this planet and make it uninhabitable. Habitable. It's just part of the nature of reality. And so the question is, will we figure out how to get off the surface in time? And we're working on that very quickly. And yeah, it's coming around. We're starting to realize that the ancients, including people that were considered to be you know, heretics and alchemists and witches, were actually talking some very powerful deep physics. Um, it's coming around in a, in a big way. And now Nassim is showing uh, in the new paper that he's working on that should be published early next year, um, how all the physical constants are related and solving for big G, which is the gravitational constant, out to 13 decimal places instead of five decimal places. And it's calculated. It's, it's not uh, observed. It's not an observation. It's a calculation based on ratios of all the scales of the universe from the subquantum to the multiverse. There's specific interval ratios of sizes of thing. You'll notice that there's not a lot of stuff between the atom and the cell and between the cell and the organism, and between the organism and the planet, and between planets and star sizes, and between star sizes and galaxy sizes, and the Harmony sizes the spheres of the planets. On the biggest level, yeah, basically. Yeah. The music of the spheres on the grandest scale. It's all the spheres, because our universe is likely a tiny little dot, if not a proton, in an atom in a larger universe. So the whole idea... Does that was bug you out? There's nothing there. <laughs> Do you feel like uh,
2: insignificant all of a
0: sudden again? Or
2: how do you view the human experience within a model that places us almost like men in black, like into the necklace of a cat or whatever?
0: It's because this is a hollow fractographic structure, which means it's a hologram and it's a fractal, which means that all the information of all the protons in the entire universe is holographically encoded into each proton. That's how the universe... Can talk to itself from the quantum scale to the large cosmological scale without stuff just falling apart and disintegrating and blowing up and being complete chaos it's because there's quantum wormholes that connect all the protons and so the universe is one thing literally physics geometry it's literally one thing the same thing the ascended masters have literally been like jumping up and down waving their arms in the air trying to explain this to us in every possible way that they know how before the invention of science (laughs) and people are like yeah yeah sure yeah we're all one okay great but now we have the physics to prove mathematically and through observation that this is the case, the entanglement, spooky action at a distance, which is actually ER equals EPR, Einstein-Rosen equals einstein podolsky rosen which means quantum entanglement is quantum wormholes. And so there's 10 to the 40 quantum wormholes coming off of each proton, connecting to 10 to the 40 other protons. And so you're embedded in that structure and there's no center every point is the center. So Sounds you like burning, are yeah. actually the center of the universe. <laughs> and this is not what we're telling kids, right? And very important thing to remember is so is everybody else, right? You go into a party with the vibe that you're the only center of the universe. People are like, who the hell does this guy I think he is? If you walk into a party, hey, what's all you other center of universes? Let's party. Then you have some serious fun. And that's Solipsism why... can be a buzzkill for sure. If you're yeah, like, it's you're important my to get mind. this information out. <laughs> I got to get this information out. So I've done a lot of presentations. I do all the social media for Nassim Haramid and the Resident Science Foundation. And then I started working for another guy who's related to this whole gang. And his name is Robert Edward Grant. And man, that guy's work is super deep. And I could spend just two hours just talking about his work. I also work for him and help his mathematical and um, geometry and ancient civilization encryptions and modern rsa uh factoring algorithm encryption work and stuff like that i want to get you back on here at some point to geek out about all this stuff because i was kind of just trying to get you to be like who are
2: you because not in a mean way but it's like i'm always i feel like a pokemon collector or something and i'm just like why is pikachu yellow and electric versus squirtle or whatever so like you have certain that's why i was looking at your chart you have certain history that kind of leads up to the karma of your present eternal moment or however you want to put it um you're an equation that's unfolding ever ever so or however you want to put it
0: Um, i I appreciate i appreciate you having me on and asking me these questions because honestly i've done a lot of these types of interviews and it's all been about the universe not too many people are like Tell me about you know high school and college and what music you were listening to and stuff that like that. Shit matters. So, it, so Let's it's be been—I know—it's been a treat to like get to actually talk about that stuff. I never talk like this usually, uh, about like personal life history stuff. So it's kind of fun to just reflect on like how I got to where I am now because it's very different than it used to be. That's for sure. Well, Rome is not built in a day, like I was saying, right? So you have a
2: history of aqueducts <laughs> and and you know crypts and all sorts of things. That create the Mm -hmm. city that you are. And I think, I mean, just Mm -hmm. looking at your chart, you're part of a zeitgeist. I mean, I don't want to get too, and I'm kind of curious, um, because like I said, I do want to get you on and geek out specifically about universal theories and things like that, hologram thinking. Um, But I'm kind of just getting my bearings on like, you know, like, who is this guy at the party or whatever. So, um were you ever like spiritual is a vague word, but were you ever like religious, in a sense where you're like, yes, I I think there's a god, or because I think a lot of Nassim stuff is explaining the physics of it, obviously clearly, um, and it's not really anthropomorphizing it, whereas esoteric kind of spiritualism of the past, like Kabbalah or whatever, um, even I think uh, I was hearing you know Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva are like you know basically dynamics of uh, physics, uh, anthropomorphized in a sense. You have a destructive force, like a neutron proton and electron. he,
0: He is anthropomorphizing. He's decoded ancient texts and ancient symbols and ancient architecture and showed that it's representing fundamental physics principles. For example, the I Ching has sixty-four hexagrams, which relates to the geometry of space-time, and it creates the geometry of space-time using the six broken sticks or six whole sticks. You can make a star tetrahedron, which is a polarized um, geometry of space-time nugget, if you want, if you will. That makes the greater uh, put together a bunch of those uh, fractally, and you get the geometry of space, which is essentially a three D flower of life symbol um, of overlapping spherical waveforms at the Planck scale, creating quantum vacuum fluctuations that make up the proton. So he is actually going into Indian, you know, in some cases, uh, uh, African, South American, um, Polynesian, uh, all over these different traditions were encoding the same set of information. And they eventually diversified and became the modern religions of today, including you know, uh, Islam and Judaism and Christianity. And so it's actually, in the end, unified field theory, in my mind, is going to be something that can help heal a lot of the religious differences. And I think that each religion is correct. Each religion is praying to the same source field, and they call it different things, and they say different things, and they have different symbols. But music is the same way, right? Like the dubstep people and the opera people can play. They can both play. (laughs) And neither one of them is pulling out a gun and saying, your music's like that and my music's like this, so I'm going to kill you. And right now, there are fundamentalists in most religions that say, here's my book. This book is the book. If you don't believe this book, I'm pissed. And I might be so pissed, I might just have to, like, use violence against you. Well, it's not just religion. Science has done this, too. You know, or politics or whatever. Sure. It's nuts. And and they shouldn't. They shouldn't. And they they don't need to because they're all correct. And it's all good. Let everybody pray however they want. And stop fighting because we're going to find out that in the end, all this came from very, very ancient sources. And that opens up a serious Serious can of worms, because especially thirty years ago, when Nasim Harman suggested that perhaps some of this ancient knowledge, for example, the Sumerians having a base sixty numerical system, is super duper advanced mathematics, like more advanced than our current base ten system. how did they get that? You know this is pre babylonian this is pre egyptian it 's pre everything right He suggested, oh well, maybe they got this from some source that's not on our tetra, not from the earth, extra tetra, right? Extra tetra, real information, extraterrestrial. (laughs) So like to have a physicist daring to say that, yeah, I think there's aliens. And yeah, I think they came here a long time ago. This is decades before ancient aliens was on television. You know what I'm saying? So I was doing presentations talking about this stuff and people would be like, dude, I don't even want to listen to this. There's no way there's extraterrestrials that came here. I'm like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> there's gotta be and a then, Paul Revere
2: in some group, you know what I mean? Like the Red well, Cards are well, coming, the Age of Aquarius. Is I easy. think it's I,
0: funny. Easy. that it's the the ancient aliens is the most lucrative most popular show on history channel it's like now you talk like this people are like oh yeah you don't have to explain this i've seen every episode of ancient aliens so there's a lot of evidence for this and yeah they make it ridiculous on ancient aliens for ratings and stuff but at the core of some of the information that they're talking it is completely an enigma and there's so many anomalies that can't be explained and i've gone around the world and looked at them myself and you're standing there looking at some of these things like yeah i don't think the vine ropes and the copper tools explanation is gonna fly right here much well, like yet, religion
2: yet, it's like a game yeah. of telephone and we just hear what we're told exactly. and pass it on
0: exactly. And exactly. we're at a
2: point now between the internet age. I mean, you've been watching it. You're old enough to have seen the internet age. I mean, like you're saying, for CD-ROMs. Like, you're in a very Marshall McLuhan kind of pinch-ish moment where, like, the paradigm's shifting. Uh, the dream <laughs> is changing, right? How are we going to put this in an inception mode? It's like, oh, shit. Um, and I think there's some people, yourself, Nasim, a whole slew of people, quite frankly, very Team Rabbit Hole-esque people who are like, willing to question things without being dogmatic necessarily I think the spirit mm-hmm. of the pursuit of truth that you're doing is important um because you're not i mean it's tricky because I think on the one hand you're trying to replace models that are so entrenched that there is an effort you could put to loosen the tooth if you want to put it that way so it's like yeah you know yeah. like you've had to be antithetical to certain positions I guess I could say but we're kind of coming to a point and I'm not sure what you're model is internally or you know beliefs or whatever but um it seems kind of like the hopey prophecies are happening or that new jerusalem is going to come soon or however you want to put this kind of thing uh and i don't want to be overly new agey optimistic um but even just recently with the saturn uh jupiter conjunction uh which isn't that big of a deal in a way it happens every 20 years but like in aquarius this hasn't happened for 800 years or something And, and the cycles within the cycles of the hologram like it's very important times we're in um right, and i right. find that people like yourself are m- not only the harbingers of these times but almost like i mean i want to look at your chart more i'll tell you more about it sometime um but like and i don't know what your uh, impression is on like multi-dimensionality and uh you know multiverse in terms of like i experience myself as this person in that timeline and i'm here now simultaneously or whatever um this kind of gets heady really quick and psychedelics help help i guess but like they can also scramble too so my point is i'm digressing a little um we're at the helm of a new and basically to put it bluntly and and it doesn't mean we'll you know lose everything but like just kind of like the mayans came up and like vanished celestine style or however the fuck that worked um i mean not exactly like that but like their model kind of was on a different wavelength and between it gets tricky because i try not to uh demonize anybody it's like okay look empire building was a thing back then and you know like christianity was like the the weapon of choice if you want to put out. you know, it's like okay You can see the world why we live in it and why like World War two is gonna happen Like if you've got Beethoven's and shit like that in Germany's like well logically speaking a plus B equals C, and we kick ass Basically, I mean you can kind of see the bad thinking. I kind of look at you guys that way now I'm like oh shit Like if it's pitch black like everyone's stumbling around a little but I think the lights are starting to come on a little and people like yourself are bringing this light of awareness in in such a way that's not only interesting Um, and engaging, but also uh, like I'm saying illuminating. Like I I think these are bringing in a lot of, uh, synthesizing quite a bit of layers of things that were probably disparate throughout many cultures. I mean, I'm not sure how into Atlantis and these kinds of ideas you are, but it seems like there was kind of a unified understanding of reality. It broke apart, shattered itself all over the planet. People got shards of it, ran this way, you know, druids that went this way and fucking Peruvians were this way or whatever. You know, Inca, Mayans. Um, And now we're kind of getting to this Syncretic moment because of the externalization of our neurological processes in the internet like we've kind of Externalized our whole mentality and now we can kind of see things in a new way and there I mean you're here for these times um, You're a little older than me and I'm a little older than Raphael But the point is like I think we signed up for this shit where it's like we want to we want to see the Empire shift And It doesn't mean money is the devil. I mean, I think you could see Bitcoin even this month. I think going crazy things are changing um when you've got, you know, the Pope talking about like sex slaves and all sorts of crazy shit like kind of in the open, WikiLeaks, all sorts of shit. It's like people are getting red pilled. And I think there's people like yourself, um I, I mean I'm not gonna throw myself on a major thing, but people like Rafael myself who are willing to get red pilled for fun in a sense, and be like, Oh, I just wanna see what this thing goes and oh yeah, cool, psychedelics or you know, whatever festivals. Like that's very psychedelic in and of itself, um, cultural, like, you know, overload almost. Um and now people, because of the internet, are kind of all initiating. I mean, we're in a mass initiation, basically post 9-11, I think, even, uh, as a potentially a mass ritual of some kind. Don't get me into that rabbit hole. But um, anyway, I kind of want to ask one or two questions, but we've got another guest on in four minutes, so I want to make sure that we wrap up this well. I do want to get you on at some point to geek out, I said, in terms of details about the model that you're proposing. Um, I want to watch the videos, get Rafael to do that, maybe have somebody else on and just kind of pick your brain on things. Um, so cool, you don't feel cool. like you have to do the same song and dance to sell the the product, but it just be like, look, we've all watched this and like, here's, what about this, what about this? Or whatever, or, or however you want. Um, but I'm curious, you've been doing a lot of traveling in the past years with Miss Sim in Machu Picchu, I saw a video, Egypt. Um, what are some of the highlights for you in terms of these kind of
0: bucket list locales? Petra Jordan. I would say number one place, if you want to go be blown away by an ancient spot, go to Petra in Jordan. Um, obviously, Egypt, all over the place is epic, and so is Peru. Um, and we did a quite a great tour in, in Mexico. But to really quickly speak to what you said earlier, I've never been religious. Uh, thankfully, my parents made a decision to not kind of, quote-unquote, make me any religion and let me decide what religion I'd want to be once I just des- realize what religion is, <laughs> Um which I didn't really ever do. Um and in terms of uh spiritual realms and esoteric realms and religions, a lot comes down to semantics and I think that some trouble gets when people take things too literally and 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 a lot of stuff from ancient times is is metaphor. Um and 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 stuff is complicated, more complicated than we thought and the problems that we're having in recent times and all times really is when people are like, this is definitely how it is. And I am definitely right. And so therefore you should be like this and you should do this. (laughs) That's not going to happen very well anymore. Now everybody's realizing how connected and one everything is and hopefully people will be allowed to be however they want and pray however they want and believe whatever they want. It's all good. Not everybody has to believe or act the same way. Um, so I'm looking, forward to, to. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to the transition that science is going to bring to um, non-science um, by pulling away the veils and people seeing how connected everything really is and hopefully gaining more empathy because of it. That's what's
2: up. Like your card, it's the episode is two hundred, the second card of the major car, high priestess. That's the esoteric, the hidden truth behind the exoteric, uh, like the high uh, priest. Sweet, sweet. So all know, right, the, all right. I mean, in a sense, like what we've been to be most priesters. people. <laughs> you, yeah, dude, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's a big episode for all us right, anyway. But right. like, it didn't. Sweet. like That's what's like. We gotta get you on because you're the high priestess episode. I know this already because <laughs> it's two. And I was just like, this is the secret. Oh this God, is the fucking right. you know money shot of the universe in a sense, and um. We've been we're having to deprogram quite a bit, but people like yourself are doing a really good job of kind of uh, making it so in a fun and friendly way. um, Everybody realizes the emperor has no clothes and the emperor is actually a black hole and we're all the singularity or whatever, which we'll get into probably next time we get you on. But thanks for creating.
0: Thanks for creating the platform for people to get word out and interconnect. It's it's appreciated. Most definitely. Jamie Janover, it's been
2: a pleasure. Um, I guess let us know of any projects you're working on. Um, we're going to link your website and you know just any kind of last-minute plugs, whatever's clever.
0: Uh, resonancescience.org. You guys, there's a free course that explains all of this physics. It's a very in-depth course, and it's totally free. That's at Resonancescience.org. So take that course, and you'll go through multiple fractal levels of rabbit holes
2: i'm gonna suggest Rafa, rafael we'll, let's do that shit before we have one next and when we do we can at least have like you know know what a two seven off suit is at the game or whatever um because i'm not a physicist so i'll get more initiated to that level uh yeah guys find the others obviously and enjoy the fucking ride uh jamie Janover is an example of someone who's not only living his highest excitement but is uh you know being a light on the way so try to do that rafael
1: Nothing to add thank you so much looking forward thank to you this time. i was just going to say gentlemen. this outro track
2: is it's ironic because the cover for alan parsons project who produced pink floyd's darks of the moon um and then made his own side project forever and you're talking about all these like you know bands making bands and stuff um it's funny because on the front cover of this album project which i actually actually projected to back in high school i'll tell you that story some other time um has a bunch of elevators. So when you're talking about the Japanese mountain full of elevators, I was like, oh shit. But this is a song, the opening track for my robot, which is a science fiction book um turned concept album, half 70s prog rockish, and it has a dulcimer I think at the very end, hence me picking it. But it's also groovy and shit like that. So hopefully you enjoy.
1: All right. Thank you guys. Uh, enjoy yourselves. Thank you all for listening.
0: Thank you. Radio Oki okay, Talk, Joshua mm-hmm. Oki okay, Talk, Radio Oki Talk, From Oki Talk,